Welcome to Today on Broadway for Thursday, November 2nd, 2017. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I am Broadway star's James Marino. And I am the theater throwback's Daniela Parcell. Oh, we're we're starting to get this. Yeah, we're starting to get this three person booth, uh, you know, starting to become a habit here. I like this. (laughs) So, welcome, Daniela. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, it's uh, Thursday, Matt. What are we going to do here? Well, first off, I want to talk about our friends over at. Uh, the Booth Theater that had their first preview performance of Meteor Shower last night. Of course, Meteor Shower is the new Steve Martin play that began performances last night and stars just a few people you may have heard of, including Amy Schumer and Keegan-Michael Key in their Broadway debuts, as well as the scrum diddly Tony Award winner Laura Benanti, as well as Tony-winning stage and screen star Jeremy Shamos. It's directed by four-time Tony winner Jerry Zaks. They had their first preview performance last night. Nary a ticket to be found because this thing is selling so well that they've smashed a Booth Theater advance record of more than $7.5 million. Now, when you start saying advance records, it doesn't really add up to a lot because of inflation and things like that. But the booth has been around for 104 years to break a record like that is still pretty cool. Um, especially for a straight play, the booth isn't huge, but there's been a number of musicals there. So congratulations to everyone involved. Uh, you know, Laura Benanti has been on uh, Broadway radio uh, a number of times and, and we love her dearly and, and wish her the best. She did send out a message yesterday via social media saying that because she is a, Mother of an eight-month-old eight with an autoimmune disease, she will not be stage dooring for the show, which is a decision that I completely respect, and I wish nothing but the best for her and her daughter. But if anybody out there has an extra ticket or two available for this show on a week from Saturday's matinee, I've been trying to find one. There aren't any, James. Like, there's, like, Daniela, if you got, like, an extra thousand bucks for me, I, I, I can get one then. But other than that, these things are tough to come by. So uh, I think that maybe people discovered that there's a secret passageway from the Booth Theater to the Walter Kerr so they can get into Springsteen on Broadway. Is maybe that, that's what's up? <laughs> maybe, maybe go back and forth. Just you know, go to one show you can't get a ticket to and then go to the other show that you can't get a ticket to. If you just hide out in the bathroom, you know, uh, yeah. you'll be fine. Yeah, you can uh, second act it, right? <laughs> All right. So, first up in the news, stars assemble for The Boys in the Band, Broadway Revival. What stars? Well, some big stars here, but this has been an announcement that has been rumored for a while. We didn't necessarily know exactly which stars would be involved, but months ago, back in June, Michael Riedel reported that this was in the works, and we've been hearing rumblings about an announcement for the past week or two. Uh, But yesterday, producers Ryan Murphy and David Stone announced that the great Joe Mantello will direct the 50th anniversary production of Mark Crawley's play The Boys in the Band. But wait, that's not all, because Murphy has called on some of his regular big-name collaborators to star in the show. The cast will feature Jim Parsons, Zachary Kinto, Matt Bomer, and Andrew Reynolds, as well as Robin DeJesus, Brian Hutchison, Michael Benjamin Washington, and Tuck Watkins, who... 
to me, that was the most fun name in the group because I will always know know him as the great David Vickers from One Life to Live. Anyway, the show will play a strictly limited 15 week run at Broadway's uh, Booth Theater from April 30th, a very odd date, which we will get back to through August 12th. The design team, ticketing information and the actor playing Cowboy will be announced in the coming weeks. The show originally premiered in 1968, and it's considered groundbreaking for how it explored the lives of gay men. The Boys in the Band centers on a group of gay men who gather in a New York City apartment for a friend's birthday party. After the drinks are poured and the music is turned up, the evening slowly exposes the fault lines beneath their friendships and the self-inflicted heartache that threatens their solidarity. Now, James and Daniela getting back to those dates... With performances beginning on April 30th, that means that the show will almost certainly be the first one to open in the 2018-2019 Broadway season, since this eligibility, this season's eligibility cutoff is the 27th. So to me, that seems to indicate that one of these big stars, Parsons, Kinto, Bomer, Reynolds, just wasn't available in March for rehearsals. So rather than recast that role, they just decided... To wait. I mean, this is going to be a huge sell with or without Tony nominations. So I don't think they're worrying about selling tickets. Just if they're going to get any award nominations or any consideration for that, it will just be literally almost a calendar year later. Yeah, that's uh, really odd. But I guess maybe they're doing it for the art, not for the awards. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, uh, Daniela, you you are considerably younger than both James (laughs) or I. Do you know who any of these people are? I um I know who they are. Actually, I know who Jim Parsons and Matt Boomer and Andrew Reynolds are, and that is it. All right. Well, Zachary Kento is a <laughs> stage and screen star. He most recently, I think, appeared on Broadway in The Glass Menagerie. Not the most recent one, but <laughs> two, two uh, ago. Although, ironically enough, I believe he played um, the same role that the director of The Boys in the Band, Joe Mantello, played in the most recent revival. So there's a little bit of connection there. He also plays Spock in the new uh, Star Trek movies, if that helps. But anyway... Of course, Robin DeJesus was an original star of In the Heights. Uh, but this is a great cast. I, it'll be interesting to see who they get for this last role. Um, Parsons, Kinto, Bomer, and Reynolds have all worked with uh, producer Ryan Murphy on TV before in various shows, some of them in multiple shows. So I'll be interested to see if he goes to the American Horror Story, Glee, um, maybe even Nick Nip Tuck Wells one more time. Uh, Andrew Reynolds starred in his show, The New Normal. So um, it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens there. Jim Parsons worked with him in The Normal Heart as well. So um, this one should be very exciting. I imagine as soon as the tickets are on sale, they will be just like Meteor Shower and Springsteen on Broadway. Very difficult to get. <laughs> hey, did you get the... Uh... They, uh, one of the many emails that we get about pronunciation, uh, they were upset with my Moulin Rouge pronunciation. Oh, no. So uh, I have to say in the next story, Malon Rogue is to reopen the historic Emerson <laughs> Colonial Theater this summer. No, I, I didn't get that when I thought that normally the poor French pronunciations come from me. So I'm glad it was you <laughs> instead. But um, yeah, yesterday when we talked about Aaron Tveit and Karen Olivo leading the currently running developmental lab for Moulin Rouge, we noted that the press release mentioned that the world premiere production would be announced soon. And man, they weren't lying because yesterday it was announced that the Alex Timbers directed musical would be the first show to play Boston's historic 
Emerson Colonial Theater when it reopens. Somewhere when I got this press release, I just imagined that somewhere in the bowels of 54 Below, Jen Tepper doing like a happy dance and kvetching (laughs) uh, because I'm sure she was very, very excited about this. Because you guys might remember that last year we talked about the fact that this theater was potentially going to be leveled uh, for further development. For I, know, I can't remember if it was commercial spaces or academic space, but then the Ambassador Theater Group came in and saved it. Well, now the theater that housed the first performances of Oklahoma, Carousel, La Caja Falls, Grand Hotel, and Follies will be doing the same for Moulin Rouge beginning in late June of 2018 before the show moves to Broadway. James, you might remember this too. I think that saving this theater was also very important to our own Peter Felicia, a, a theatrical historian uh, in you know the highest levels who I think has seen a lot of shows at this theater uh, over the years. So I'm very, very happy about this. And then looking at the dates of this show begins in late June and does the normal month and a half, two months that out of town tryouts do ends by the end of August. You'd have to assume that the Moulin Rouge production team is hoping if there's a theater available to have it on Broadway by this time next year. And then of course, even more hoping would be if Tavate and Olivo were in tow. Sure. I mean, uh, it makes all sense and it, and it seems like uh, all systems are go for them. They are just planning to come to Broadway and uh, it, I, 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 it's wonderful that we have so much stuff coming in, but I don't know where we're going to put it. <laughs> that's, that's always the issue. Now, going back to our favorite resident millennial, Daniela, have you ever <laughs> seen the Moulin Rouge movie? Um, I have not. I um, am kind of notorious for having not seen many uh, like noteworthy movies. I just watched Groundhog Day for the first time because I had seen the musical. So, oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> I, I, would, I would imagine that there were very few people in the audience for that musical that saw the stage show before the movie. So yeah, good for you for bucking first. the trend. <laughs> yeah, good for you. All right, it's very different. I would imagine that the the disconnect between the stage show of Groundhog Day and the film of Groundhog Day will be much larger than whatever differences there are between Moulin Rouge on stage and screen. I think there will definitely be differences because Moulin Rouge on screen is very lusciously lavish and, and grand and opulent in its design. I don't know how much of that they will be able to recreate on stage. I think with people like Alex Timbers involved and um, I, I believe the uh, – uh, uh, the let me see oh yeah the great Derek McLean I couldn't think of who it was Derek McLean is doing the sets I'm sure they'll be great but it'll be hard to recreate that on stage but I would imagine a lot of the rest of the show itself will be similar so there won't be huge breaks between that like there was in Groundhog Day all right uh, next up major changes to the court theater are in the works yeah, I feel like we should just have Mark Hirschberg have his own segment yeah. on here because with all the articles he's putting uh, in into Forbes about the theater business, uh, it seems like we're talking about him a lot. But anyway, apparently he reported on Tuesday night that the Schubert organization proposed fairly substantial renovations to the more than a century old court theater to a local landmark committee. The plan uh, is to build a 19,250 square foot annex connected to the theater that will house additional bathrooms and concessions on each level of the theater, as well as have rehearsal space on top and a grand staircase in the middle. I didn't know this, James. You would probably know this better than Daniela or I would. But apparently the court, which seats over a thousand people, only has six bathroom stalls for women. Yes, that's that's not good. And apparently in the, in the loge, there's only two. So that's probably not 
a, a recipe for long-term success there. Um, apparently, other plans are to move an offstage dressing room over to the annex in order to accommodate more wing space to bring in larger shows and to install an LED video marquee on the outside of the court. While some of the aspects of the proposal were met with a little bit of pushback from the committee, it was unanimously supported, meaning that thanks to the $41 million air right sale, the Schuberts are able to move forward with the planned renovations both inside and outside of the court. They're going to spruce up the outside, bring in replicas of some of the original doors and artwork and windows and stuff. So, you know, I, I we often talk, James, about the fact that there's not a lot enough theater space on Broadway. And while this won't do anything to address that, what this will do is open the court up to being able to accommodate more shows, to accommodate different shows, especially the, uh, the planned expansion of the backstage area. It's a big theater, but because there's not a lot of wing space and a lot of backstage space, it can only take certain types of shows that have very limited um, you know, automated set design, and a lot of different stuff. So this will at least open the theater up to other shows that it might not have been able to house in the past. So I was over at the court theater earlier this week seeing M Butterfly. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think, you know, I don't know if you know that there's sort of this, this myth and lore out there that shows that are on the East side of Broadway, um, often have a challenge finding an audience. So uh, it's interesting that they're going to put a lot of time, effort, and money into developing the court theater uh, when it is on that uh, east side of Broadway, even though it's uh, it's a jewel. It's a really great thing to be putting money into 48th Street. Mm-hmm, absolutely. All right. Uh, show and casting news. What do you got going? All right. Well, yesterday, the New York Daily News reported that 16-time Grammy-winning producer David Foster has officially moved from his Los Angeles home to New York City in order to be accepted by the Broadway community as he tries to mount a Broadway production of the musical that he wrote focusing on the iconic cartoon character Betty Boop. James, I think we've talked about this show before. Well, apparently it is moving forward and the full-out Energizer Bunny that is Jerry Mitchell will be directing a reading of the show next month. Uh, um, Apparently Foster said when talking uh, to the New York Daily News last month said, you cannot be that West Coast pop guy who rolls into New York and says, hey, I'm going to do a Broadway musical. I want to be accepted and not be that guy from the West Coast. I, I don't think that that's really a problem when you're someone like David Foster, who has the resume of winning 16 Grammys, working with people like Madonna and Michael Jackson and Barbara Streisand and Alice Cooper and Shaka Khan and all these people. So I think he's 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 fine. But uh, it's interesting that he's really diving in there to continue the trend of this show, though. Daniela, any idea who Betty Boop is? I am aware that Betty Boop exists. I am exactly there with you. I was just thinking to myself, I, you know, other than the black and white and red bow of Betty Boop, I'm not sure what a Betty Boop musical would be. Yep, I don't pretty much. Well, she's she's a cigarette girl and and a performer and she goes boop boop be doop boop. That's really it. I mean, she was also in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I believe. Yes, this boy. 
I know, seriously. <laughs> Call my agent. I'm offer only, uh, Mr. Foster. Um, yeah, but anyway, I have no idea what this musical would be anyway, but apparently he wrote the score for it, and they're working on the script. It's been in the in the works for a long time. Uh, the New York Daily News article notes that he uh, is a, a friend of former Smash star Catherine McPhee. He insists that they're only friends, nothing more than friends, but I don't know. She kind of played a Betty Boop-like character as Marilyn Monroe in Smash and Blonde Bombshell. Maybe she could be attached. I'm sure the Broadway community would love that. Anyway, moving on to uh, another story. Yesterday it was announced that Harry Potter and the Cursed Child Parts 1 and 2 will hold a special uh, benefit performance on Saturday, May 12th, with proceeds benefiting the education programs of the new Victory Theater. The... Seats will include tickets to the show, both parts, a listing in the gala program and a new victory show program book for the 2017-2018 season. And it will be a charitable donation. So you can write that off. The prices will start at one thousand dollars each and go all the way up to seventeen fifty. If you keep getting rejected via Ticketmaster Verified Fan, this might be the only way to purchase tickets. So if you want to do that, we will have a link in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. And then finally in this section, yesterday Broadway HD announced that the play, the new play Tom Payne, which is uh, was written by Will Eno, which played at the Geffen Playhouse in California earlier this year, will be available on their streaming service beginning on January 11th. If you didn't know, the play features the office's Rain Wilson, who is just... Amazing. Uh, the play was actually a Pulitzer Prize finalist for drama in 2005. Uh, Tom Payne based on nothing, but being able to see Rain Wilson in in something like this, I, I'm so excited. I love Rain Wilson. Um, uh, Danielle, I assume you know who Rain Wilson is. I hope you've heard of The Office. Yes, I do. I love The Office. Okay. Finally, okay. something that I that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Very... It only took us five stories. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very surprised that you're a big Office and Rain Wilson fan, Matt, because that sort of awkward uh, anxiety comedy. I thought that it's not thing. Thing. it's not your thing. So it's I'm surprised not. that you're a fan of The Office and Rain Wilson. Small. I mean, right. Yeah. I'm. I was actually a bigger um a fan of um oh the guy who created it um um uh, ricky gervais and because i was a ricky gervais fan i kind of watched a little bit i never watched it totally um i uh you're right the awkward stuff does get to me i don't love that but rain wilson's character is just so over the top Um, dwight schrute is just so ridiculous um, you have to love them in small doses. I never watched it all the way through, but you're right. It's not typically my thing. <laughs> all right. Oh, but this is totally my thing. Oh, this is, yeah, this oh. is right up my alley. All right. Kristen so, Bell. You, you going to take go it or me? No, go ahead. Okay. Kristen Bell performs Frozen and Metallica mashup. Well, and that's not it. Okay. So here's the thing. Um, on Jimmy Kimmel Live, uh, Jimmy Kimmel's been out all week because his son was going to have a follow-up heart surgery. I don't. I think they actually ended up delaying uh, the surgery, but nonetheless, he had guest hosts hosting the show all week. And for the Halloween episode, Foo Fighters frontman as well as Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl uh, took over the hosting duties, and he dressed up with like modern day David Letterman with the full white beard. And then one of their main guests was Kristen Bell, who was also guest hosted the last time Jimmy Kimmel was out for Halloween. She dressed up. 
like Magnum PI era Tom Selleck, chest hair and all, uh, mustache, chest hair. It was unbelievable. And so Dave Grohl said that he was getting huge points with his three daughters because he was getting to talk with Kristen Bell, the voice of Princess Anna. And he said he would be the coolest dad in the world if if he could rock out with her, if he could play drums while she sang. So, of course, they sang, do you want to build a snowman? And then as it slowly the, the the drums and the rock started to get heavier and heavier, it transitioned to enter Sandman by Metallica. It was awesome. So cool. I love Kristen Bell. Um, as anyone who listens to Sound Like a Pop knows that my co-host Jennifer McHugh, uh, the Foo Fighters are her favorite band. So I'm sure we'll be talking about this on the next episode. But it was really, really great. A really, really fun way to uh, relive some of the holiday or the Halloween stuff a day later. All right, Daniela. So, your first live theater throwback. So, tell us about it. Yes, here we go. So, today's segment is kind of twofold. We are going back to October 29th, 1967. This was the opening night of Hair Off Broadway, and it was also the opening of the New York Shakespeare Festival's new theater at Astor Place. This was the beginning of what we know today as the public theater. So I have a couple of great articles from the New York Times. One is a review from Clive Barnes, and the other is a feature by Ada Louise Huxtable on the theater itself. So with the opening of Hair, New York's Astor Library, which was facing threats of demolition in the mid-60s, became the new space for Joseph Papp's New York Shakespeare Festival. The Shakespeare Festival was founded by Papp himself in the mid-50s when he began holding free Shakespeare performances on the Lower East Side and then in Central Park. The Parks Commissioner Robert Moses wasn't happy with the idea of free theatrical performances in the middle of Central Park, and he insisted that Papp began charging for these shows. But Papp fought back, and he won, so he could continue holding these performances free of charge. And on top of that, by 1962, they had actually built a space for these shows, the open-air Delacorte Theatre. These free Shakespeare in the Park performances continued on, and as I'm sure many of you know, they are still held today every summer at the Delacorte. In the mid-60s, Joe Papp expanded his focus from just Shakespeare. As I mentioned, this was when he acquired the old Astor Library and turned it into a playhouse. The Shakespeare Festival began operating as the public, as it does today, and the first show to run in the new space was Hair. Written by James Rado, Jerome Ragney, and Galt McDermott, Hair is known as the first rock musical. It was also one of the first concept musicals, so rather than following a strict linear plot-slash-structure, it centered more around an interwoven theme, which was the hippie counterculture of the late 60s. In his review of the Public Theater's production, Clive Barnes called it a mood picture of the generation, which I think uh, sums it up pretty well. (laughs) Barnes's review was not completely positive, though. He stated that the show was very much worth seeing, but he didn't love the lack of plot or the what he said was the not especially original score. But by the time the musical had closed at the public, finished another New York run, and opened on Broadway in 1968, Barnes had embraced the musical and had some really great things to say. He briefed the readers, this was in um, his Times review of the Broadway run, he briefed the readers on the show's nudity and apparently disrespectful treatment of the American flag, and then he called Hare the first Broadway musical in some time to have the authentic voice of today rather than the day before yesterday. 
Most critics agreed with Clive Barnes, and the production ran for just over four years at Broadway's Biltmore Theater. And since then, Hair has been revived on Broadway three times in 1977, 2004, and 2009. As for the public, Hair began a long string of new daring works produced by the company, including A Chorus Line, Caroline or Change, Fun Home, and of course, Hamilton. And the public actually just held a 50th anniversary celebration of the musical last week. A whole bunch of stars from the show's many Broadway productions were in attendance, including Will Swenson, Casey Levy, Jonathan Groff, and the writer James Rado. There was a lot of coverage on that, so there will be a link or two in the notes. And I'll send those to you guys. Um, also this week in history, on October 30th, 2003, Wicked opened at the Gershwin Theater. On October 31st, 2012, Broadway shows resumed after being temporarily shut down due to Hurricane Sandy. On November 2nd, 2006, Grey Gardens opened at Broadway's Walter Kerr Theater. And on November 3rd, 2005, the Michael Cerverus and Patti LuPone-led revival of Sweeney Todd opened at the Eugene O'Neill. And that is it. I have to say that that original review of Hair that didn't like the lack of plot and thought the music was good but kind of derivative, that's very similar to how I feel about the show. <laughs> I know this is sacrilegious to a lot of people. The show doesn't do a whole lot for me, and I've said before, unless there's like a great cast, I don't really need to see it again. Like I like the cast album. I like listening to the music, but the show, maybe I just don't – maybe I, I – I I never done drugs, so maybe that's why I don't get it. So I, I don't I, I don't know. Hair is not my not my jam, so to speak. But I've seen a couple different productions, including the last national tour, and it's just that's that's actually very well summed up how I feel about it. You could mm-hmm. be a New York Times uh, reviewer now. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a straight white guy. They don't need to hire any more like me. True. <laughs> All right, Daniela, why don't you get us out of here? All right. um, I am Daniela Parcell. Thank you guys for listening. Come back tomorrow. I will not be here, though. (laughs) Yes. Thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter at BWWMatt and subscribe to Something Like a Pop on iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play. And my name is James Marino from BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. Thanks for spending some of your Thursday with us. Come on back uh, tomorrow. We might have just another guest. And uh, we'll actually be running just a few minutes late on Friday morning, won't we, Matt? We will. Yep. All right. So check us out probably in the 8 a.m. range. We'll talk to you then. (laughs) 